First, though, continuing a conversation you likely heard on the Mike Smith Show, Mike was joined by Troy Clifford, who is the provincial president of the Ambulance Paramedics of BC, talking about some documents that were uncovered by the BC Liberal Caucus through a Freedom of Information request. The emails show exchanges between emergency health services and ecom and others leading up to the fatal heat dome we saw at the end of June. Well, we wanted to continue that conversation. So Troy Clifford is joining us once again. Troy, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me on. I know you were talking about this earlier today, but there's just so much information in these documents. We wanted to talk to you a little bit more about this. These are documents, they were email exchanges obtained by the BC Liberal Caucus uh, through Freedom of Information, taking a look at kind of the weeks leading up to that heat dome that killed hundreds of British Columbians and really shows what seems to be an awareness from BC Emergency Health Services that there were already lengthy delays when people were calling for 911 and that maybe they should have known uh, that this could have potentially been the situation it was. What is your response in hearing uh, some of those exchanges leading up to that heat dome? Well, you know, to be honest, I mean, you know, Joe, we've talked, we had talked about it for a significant time prior to the heat dome. So, uh, you know, none of that surprises me in the sense that uh, our staffing, our shortages, our, our delays, uh, quite frankly, were, were, were an issue leading up to uh, what I call the heat dome was really the straw that broke the camel's back. Nothing in there surprises me, and it wasn't something that was not already discussed publicly. I mean, I'd been uh, basically saying to anybody that would listen or not listen to me that uh, we're in trouble. And, uh, um, and then, really, I, I think that, uh, so, you know, my response to it is, you know, it just, confirms what we already had been talking about shortages and the staffing challenges and the recruitment issues that have been well documented so um i don't think it's anything new and really what what happened and you've heard me say this the heat dome and the and what really came to light was there was the ambulance service was questioned um their response was questioned publicly um and by the media and uh and we know we've seen delays and then you know the minister responded quite frankly with significant increases on July 14th. So within two weeks, that heat dome. Um, but even prior to the heat dome, we've been meeting with the ministry to try and address these challenges. So um, my response is essentially, you know what? Uh, it exposed the vulnerability of the ambulance service. We had been saying for a while. Um, and then, you know, the minister uh, responded within two weeks of the heat dome and put significant changes into the ambulance service that July 14th announcement, the, re, the change of the governance, the establishment of the chief ambulance officer, the new board, the additional resources that were added, significant amounts of resources were added. Was that enough? No, because we're still seeing those delays. But we're still working together. So since then, that the, the joint initiatives and the working collaboration has really come a long ways. Um, prior to that, we hadn't had the relationship with the, the previous uh, leadership group. And uh, so I don't know if that answers all your questions. I'm just curious what your thoughts on because some of the dates and a lot of the email exchanges are on the dates of the heat dome talking about frustration yeah. and really showing that but one of them also goes back to before that and it goes back to June 3rd where the information shows that the the service call wait times were and it quotes compromising public safety overall that was almost a month before the heat dome and I think people will hear that and think well why wasn't something done then? 
Yeah, so as you remember, that that's right when we opened up was the beginning of June. Um, and we did see those significant increases in call volume, but those delays. And, and, and we were sounding alarms, particularly right after opening up, because that's when we've seen those significant delays. So, yeah, that's true. God, I mean, it, it's well documented in the media and uh, in, my, in my interviews that we were sounding that alarm. Unfortunately, it took that heat dome to really um, expose it to the levels that we're seeing and that those uh, documents sound like they confirm uh, exactly what we talked about. So, you know, June third, I think, was the or June second was the announcement of the opening up, and that's when we seen those uh, increased call volumes. We went from pre-COVID, where we were about fifteen hundred calls a day uh, across the province, to uh, in June we started seeing June third around that. We started seeing around seventeen hundred, seventeen fifty calls a day for ambulances, and then during that heat dome at the peaks, we were over two thousand calls. So that. All, everything you're saying is consistent and all the documents are consistent with what we knew and now it's confirmed that the ambulance service knew that and I think that's really what what really came to light with the, uh, the uh, when the minister announced the change of governance he questioned that um, and uh, that's why he put the new board in place the new uh, leadership model and we're working through that so you're you're absolutely right Jill um, June 2nd and 3rd is really when things really started um, going to another level. Right. And, and then looking at some of the exchanges as well, I mean, there are some, and this is during the heat dome, this one taking place on June 28 from the director of corporate communications at Ecom uh, to the executive leadership team saying, I'm assuming it's one of our staff, nothing that's untrue, but it does make me nervous to think about more and more people potentially speaking out publicly. The fact that people died while waiting is being mentioned. Uh, so it's, it seems like uh, here we are, people are dying in their homes and we're seeing email with concerns about people speaking out. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and that, that, that uh, you know, I, I, as you recall, I think I was on a number of your shows on CKNW just uh, talking about that, how tragic and how the impacts of uh, not being able to respond was impacting the mental health and wellness of our paramedics and dispatchers. Um, and they seen those people. It was tragic. The impacts of that heat on so many lives were horrible and uh, par- paramedics were lashing out, uh, reaching out, um, crying to anybody that would listen. So were the public. Uh, so I think all the the outcomes and the uh, and the effects of the heat dome on lives um, were very real. And anybody that questions that, um, you know, and so when you when you know, I was very concerned about the leadership of BCS at the time and leading up to the heat dome, obviously. Um, and that's why I was so passionate to, about sounding the alarm and telling anybody that would even remotely listen to me. Um, I'm thankful the minister actually did listen to me, and we were able to work through some of the differences. So, so I'm I'm keeping the pressure on now because we're still seeing these delays. Um, I'm engaging him and the new leadership. We got to do better. We're still seeing delays. Um, what will change then, or, or when you talk about uh, still seeing delays uh, moving forward, because yeah. I've also been hearing from some paramedics who are saying uh, that there there are issues when it comes to the five different levels of paramedics, everything from an emergency medical responder all the way up to the infant transport paramedic, and, and concerns that changes that are coming on November 1st uh, mean the, the standby salary or the standby pay is going to be inadequate and that more paramedics are going to leave or, or are not going to be able to do that in various parts of the province? 
yeah, that's actually one of our biggest issues is uh, recruitment into the profession. So we're doing a lot of a lot of the uh, changes were announcements of conversions of regular part time of precarious work that you mentioned to full time. But what we're really not seeing is the intake of uh, new paramedics into our profession, um, and that's because of that precarious work, the the low the staffing model where we we pay two dollars an hour while people wait for a call and then they're paid their paramedic rates. So until that changes, and there seems to be a general consensus uh, or agreement, I guess is probably a better way to say it, that we need to change that model because we're not enticing people into this profession. When, they're, when they have opportunities in the industry where they can make $500 a day or significant uh, wages in, uh, in, as a medic in industry, that isn't allowing us to recruit into this. And that's part of our biggest, uh, one of our biggest challenges with um, sustaining the uh, staffing that we need. Is it is it true that if you're a, an emergency medical responder, so the first tier of a paramedic, that you're yeah. you're not allowed to staff ambulances in cities because you can't t- drop an IV? No, so they they can. Um, the model in the Lower Mainland and mo- the provincial model is PCP is the minimum standard uh, for ambulance services in the province. Um, years ago, they uh, they they added that uh, emergency medical responder in. To, because of our staffing issues, but uh, and uh, normally they're not done in the Lower Mainland. That's one of the recommendations we've we've made is to allow the opening up of uh, that lesser license level to support us in well we as a short term mitigation model to uh, get us through until we can get these people trained up to PCP or entice enough people into the service to um, prop up the stuff. So yeah, there's some collective agreement and there's some uh, operational challenges with that. But uh, we're not restricting anybody working in any of the province uh, because we need everybody on deck. Uh, and if they don't have an IV, that uh, we need to support where we can. That's one skill set and scope of practice that uh, a PCP and higher can provide. Um, but there are a number of critical interventions at the emergency medical responder level. Um, um, but anybody that knows our service and knows what they do. They, they provide a lot of coverage and, and service across the province, and, and they're a vital part of the system. Is one of the obstacles as well the training and that paramedics have to pay for their own training and that did it used to be the Justice Institute or there was funding to help paramedics move up those tiers? Yeah, so internally that opportunity for advancement and training, and, and, and you know, we've made those recommendations um there's there's definitely models in that uh, and opportunities within the organization and we need to provide that funding that has not as you described has not been happening and uh that needs to happen so that we can resist and that's the uh attainable and retention part of it but uh there are funding options and then and we've been meeting with the ministry and the recruitment on that exactly that there need to be more grants and opportunities and we see this in other trades and um, when there's a shortage of demands, you know, we've seen it with nurses, that sort of stuff. So when there's a supply and demand issue for staffing, and, and we're not the only uh, organization that has workforce challenges, but uh, then you have to have find ways to uh, put more people in, into this, to recruit them into the profession. And with that becomes grants or opportunities for advanced training or regular training. And so that's definitely, you're, you're, you're absolutely correct on, on the, the paid training model uh, needs to help or, or support it at the very least. All right, Troy, I know it's a very busy day for you. Thank you so much for coming back on CKNW today, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Joe. I hope uh, I was able to answer and shed some light on some of the sort of the challenges we have and where we're going. 
Thanks so much for being with us. Well, later today, starting around 6 p.m., well, at 6 p.m., there is going to be a conference taking place. It's a webinar, and it's taking a deep dive look into the 26th UN Climate Change Conference. And that is the conference that is kicking off on October 31st in Glasgow. And joining me now to talk a little bit more about not only what's going to be happening at the webinar, but what actually happens at these conferences is Angela. Ali Apadurai, Climate Justice Lead with the Sierra Club of BC. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks so much for having me. I want to talk about this webinar first. We don't normally talk about webinars, but this, I think, mm-hmm. is something that, that we, we talk about the UN conferences and we see leaders going to these conferences. We see news events taking place from them, but not a, a lot of details as far as the actual goals of it or, or what actual work is being done. So is that what's going to be discussed or kind of talked about at this webinar? Yeah, the the UN process on climate change is this huge, you know, like very complicated uh, thing that has, you know, a 20, uh, almost 30 year history. And so you need sort of inroads or pathways to be able to understand uh, what's happening there better. So I think this webinar will aim to demystify a lot of the process and, and, and clear up some of the concepts that are a little bit more technical. <clears throat> what is your hope as far as what will be discussed, I guess not only discussed, but what will be accomplished by this climate change conference? I, you know, every year, every year that progress is delayed on the climate is a year in which we lock in more destruction and, and irreversible loss and damage from climate disruption. And so I would hope that this year we are able to get to a place where countries can agree to appropriate binding targets by 2030 that are in line with their fair share. And fair shares are determined by principles of equity and fairness. Um, and, and I hope that we can maintain those equity principles while achieving more ambition in the talks. When we look at other climate conferences, though, and when we look at goals and people will think of the Paris goals and, and, and not having met those, how do you get people to buy in or how do you get people to be excited about this when you look at previously set goals and mm. it doesn't seem to be, it doesn't seem like there are any repercussions, I mean, other than the, the world heating up, but repercussions mm. as far as countries not meeting those goals? Well, I think this is really where civil society comes in. Um, you know, I'm I'm an advocate, an activist, and a campaigner, and so I I'm interested in that intersection of where social movements can push policy forward, so that when they come to the negotiating table every year at the COP, um, they're feeling the heat from home. And um, I think we're seeing that starting to ramp up, uh, especially in the U.S., definitely here in in Canada. And um, I think it's so important for us to. Um, as civil society to understand what's happening at these talks, to understand where we as Canada is falling behind and where we're not contributing our fair share to the global community, and then to to really push our government at home for that. And when you say we're not committing to our fair share, uh, how so? Well, the whole logjam of these talks is that there are certain uh, nations like Canada that are considered to be developed they're industrialized and they're wealthy nations that have more of a historical responsibility for climate change. And so there's a whole set of conflicts about how much of that historic responsibility 
um, gets taken into account in determining how much responsibility to reduce emissions every country needs to take on. And so according to our historical contribution um, as Canada, according to our level of wealth and capacity, and uh, according to our, our sort of power, uh, geopolitical power, our fair share is actually quite steep. Our fair share is more than 140% emissions reductions below our 2005 levels, which is sounds like a lot, but a big portion of that is actually our obligation to support um, developing countries through finance, um, through um, just financial support and capacity building support and sharing our technology. Um, those are all written into the Paris Agreement. Um, and so that's the fair share that we should be holding our government to. And, and when we talk about individuals, and this might be oversimplifying it, but uh, but I have seen this comparison mm. made or this question made, and I think it does it does raise a valid point because people are living in expensive cities here in BC. Uh, people have gone through this pandemic, are still going through this pandemic, in some cases have lost jobs, mm. and are, are struggling in many cases. So when you see a bunch of leaders flying on emitting jets and gathering in mm. Glasgow and telling people, don't you dare drive or park your SUV, that message can get lost. Absolutely. And I think this is where I'm interested in getting us all to use similar framings around climate justice. And one of the one of the framing differences is that instead of blaming ourselves, we look to the polluting industries that are doing everything in their power to stop progress at these talks and um, and to turn the blame back to the individuals. I mean, I think it's a real question of fairness. Um, these these global negotiations are really still necessary. They're they're absolutely necessary um, because climate change doesn't recognize borders. It's a global problem, and so virtual talks have a, a bunch of fairness um, issues just because access to internet and access to power and and these things that we take for granted here are not guaranteed around the world. And so last year during the pandemic. Um, the UN climate body tried to have a a set of interim talks um, virtually, and those were riddled with these problems of access and, um, uh, and participation. And so these talks are important, uh, but it's a question of holding that truth and then holding the truth that, um, you know, it's, it's not us as individuals that are to blame, although we can be conscientious and we can be, um, we can be thoughtful about our lifestyles and reducing our carbon footprint, but um, ultimately, our collective action to, to, to get our governments to mandate the wind down of the fossil fuel industry is the most important thing we can do for the climate. And when you talk about uh, that climate change doesn't know borders, doesn't recognize borders, I think that makes a lot of sense. I know there was a report recently, a UN report, uh, that talked a a bit about a very worrying uh, thing as far as as the Amazon rainforest, saying that it's gone from Mm -hmm. being the carbon sink. And I think when there were fires in the Amazon, people were paying a lot more attention, but saying the the Amazon parts of it have gone from being a carbon sink now to uh, a place that has become a source of carbon dioxide which is alarming to people but how do mm-hmm. how do you make that message resonate or, or or how do you make that message that well as a Canadian here's what you can do or here's what you should do because this is happening in the Amazon well I think well as British Columbians specifically we have um, you know we have our own forest to point to where we can see that you know our old growth forests in BC are some of the last 
remaining um, ancient forests in the world, and they they have they hold so much significance culturally and ecologically and spiritually to indigenous people who have been here for thousands of years. And I think it's important to draw connections between the place that you live and and these things like the burning of the Amazon happening in other parts of the world, because ultimately it is the same story playing out. Climate change um, is the result of extractive industries that have taken hold upon indigenous lands and, and lead to uh, the imbalance of our ecosystems past the point of return. And that's the same story playing, uh, playing out across the world. It's the same story playing out here in BC. So I think we have a very strong parallel. And to use forests as an entry point to that, I think is very powerful and helps us to understand the issue a bit better. Uh, we see the number 1.5 used quite often, and I know it's uh, mm. part uh, for speakers that are taking part in the webinar, uh, Elizabeth mm. May uh, saying 1.5 to stay alive. Where does that number 1.5 come from? Uh, 1.5 degrees is the globally agreed upon target. Um, and that is the limit to which we need to keep warming under um, relative to pre-industrial levels if we want to avoid um, irreversible climate damage. Now, there's still a lot of climate damage that happens all the way up to 1.5 degrees of warming. But um, <clears throat> one of the speakers tonight, Rachel White, uh, will be speaking about the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees. Because, you know, if you're not... To, to the layperson, that doesn't sound like a big difference. It's half a degree. Um, but there, there's a huge amount of difference um, in, in that small figure. 1.5 degrees is the absolute maximum level of warming that many countries around the world, especially small island states, um, have, have, have said repeatedly um, is, is the absolute maximum level of warming for survival. So it's a matter of survival at 1.5. And uh, right now, our, our pathway globally is leading us to a four or five degree world. Um, and at those levels of warming, we are seeing we're seeing absolutely catastrophic climate breakdown um, before the end of this century. And as British Columbians, after the summer we just had with an unprecedented heat dome and, and a raging wildfire season, I mean, that's that's at a level of warming that's not even approaching 1.5 degrees yet. And so um, I think it's important to connect that number, which sounds so small, to the actual um, devastation that that will occur. So 1.5 degrees is already a significant amount of sea level rise. It's already an increase in extreme weather events and cyclones and hurricanes and flooding. It's, um, it's an increase in wildfires. It's an increase in all kinds of climate impacts around the world. Um, so I think it's important to remember that. All right, Anjali, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much. I know it's a busy day today with all of this going on. So thank you so much for making some time for us. Thanks so much, Joe. Appreciate it. Well, the Supreme Court of Canada is set to rule on October 29th, just a couple of days from now, on jokes made by a, que a Quebec comedian by the name of Mike Ward. Ward is appealing an earlier decision. This was a decision made by the Quebec Human Rights Tribunal that determined his act included discriminatory comments against a singer that has disabilities. So joining me to talk a bit more about this is Julius Gray, the lawyer 
for comedian Mike Ward. Julius Gray, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. Uh, is this the first time we've had the Supreme Court of Canada rule on a case like this? Well, no, I don't think it's the first time. Uh, I think there have been cases in freedom of expression that uh, have been decided uh, throughout uh, the court's history, in particular the one that uh, legalized Lady Chatterley's lover, which was also uh, you know, it was a, a, another case of uh, uh, an allegation of artistic freedom, which succeeded before the court. Um, it's not the first time. It's, I think, the first time that a a comedy show routine has been before the court in recent years, or maybe ever. Uh, so can you walk us through the case a little bit for people who aren't familiar with this, how we went from being at a, a human rights tribunal case or a human rights case, uh, the decision there, and how it's made its way through the courts to land at the Supreme Court of Canada? Well, the Canadian, uh, the Quebec Human Rights Commission, rather, uh, took an action in the uh, uh, tribunal, the tribunal, uh, alleging uh, that uh, the jokes uh, in uh, Mr. Ward's routine uh, constituted uh, discrimination and and affront to the dignity of uh, the singer. Uh, They won in first instance, including a judgment in favor of the singer's mother. That part was set aside in the Court of Appeal, but the Court of Appeal, in a two-to-one judgment, maintained the fundamental uh, condemnation of the routine as being discriminatory, and we got leave to appeal, so we're before the Supreme Court uh, claiming that there is no discrimination, that it's uh, a matter of artistic freedom. And artistic freedom then in part of Mike Ward's routine or part of his the jokes that he told on stage. These were jokes that that had this young singer who has disabilities as the subject of the jokes? Well, yes, he was joking about various uh, uh, prominent people, Celine Dion and so on, and he was making fun of it. I mean, that's the nature of the Comedy Act. The question before the court, and I'm going to be very objective about it. It's too late to be partisan. The court will decide how it will decide. The question is whether uh, this type of humor uh, can be deemed to be discriminatory if it it is on the subject uh, prohibited uh, uh, by the human rights law. In other words, can you make fun of somebody and uh, mention his race while you're making fun or his accent or whatever? This is the question before the court. I know that in the arguments, um, uh, making your case to the court, I think I had seen one of the the quotes from you was, there's no right not to be offended. Uh, Does it matter how the joke is told? Or in this particular case, does it matter if the joke is kind of generically about the individual or if it specifically includes the disability of this person? Well, in this particular case, I... Can, uh, first of all, I do believe, that's my belief, and we'll see what the court says, that there is no right to be, not to be offended, just like there are no safe spaces in universities, and nobody has a right only to hear what he or she wants to hear. But uh, when it comes to uh, what happened in, in this case, the Human Rights Tribunal ruled that the jokes which were not, he was not selected because he was handicapped, but because the jokes made reference to the handicap, then that was discriminatory. 
and you know we argued that it was not it's for the supreme court to decide whether it is or not and is it because of the venue or the fact that we're talking about a comedian who this was part of his act in that uh, if somebody came up to this young man and said the same thing to his face, I can't imagine we would end up in a human rights tribunal well, I, and to I, the Supreme I doubt Court. That we would uh, we'd be saying something to somebody's face. Uh, I suppose if it's a, an insult or whatever, you you could end up with a, a, a case, but it's it's rather unlikely. Uh, I think the problem is that uh, stand-up comics have become, it's a form of, of, of uh, entertainment that has gained in popularity over the last 30 or 40 years, and it necessarily involves, uh, uh, humor always involves a certain degree of cruelty. So some people object. It's only funny if it's hard. Uh, now, that said, the question is, can you and that's for the Supreme Court, I won't argue it now, can you make fun of things that are included in the Human Rights Act? In other words, could you make fun of a politician who had a handicap? Could you make fun of somebody who had an accent, uh, make fun of Henry Kissinger's accent? Could you um, uh, make fun of people's origins? And uh, the answer is up to the Supreme Court. What kind of impact do you think this case could have then? I mean, given how the Supreme Court rules, and we won't know that until the 29th, but I mean, is there a potential here? This could bring down some very strict rules as to like what you just said, what stand-up well, comedians will be able I to say. I always feared, I feared personally that if Mr. Ward was ultimately unsuccessful, that uh, people would have to become very careful about what they say in on stage in cinema and in in papers it, it, it that it, it would create a chill i hope it doesn't but that was my fear it's only my subjective fear um the uh, if mr ward were to succeed i don't think it means that everything goes it would st- you still couldn't uh, get on stage and and blurt out state secrets or or personal information about somebody who was not public or there were, there would still be certain li- limits but i do think that there is a lot at stake uh, and it has nothing to do with the present case but uh, in our society uh, basic freedoms are uh, under attack right now. In Quebec in particular, the government has taken to using the notwithstanding clause. Um, Many people think that, uh, for instance, there should be a certain degree of censorship. uh, They're saying that about Google or about uh, uh, other social platforms. So quite, that's not the present case. It doesn't deal with that. But I think it is very important it was very important for me, anyway, to reaffirm the importance of freedom of expression, freedom of artistic expression in particular. I think we're living at a time when challenges to that freedom abound, and some of them may be well-founded. The Supreme Court will decide if this one was well-founded, but I have a fear for uh, uh, freedom of expression in the general atmosphere of our times, not only uh, with respect to this case. This case is only one of many.
Right. And and certainly uh, we've been talking a lot. Uh, certainly Dave Chappelle has been in the news. There have been other uh, cases where well, those... that's another example. <laughs> and Jean Chrétien has been in the news in the last few days where people were jumping on him because of things he said about residential schools. And it's not artistic. He was, he was making a political comment. Uh, but um, uh, in general, I think people have become easily indignant at what other people say. Uh, now, they're surely maybe limits, and, uh, and the Supreme Court will decide that. I don't want to re-argue the case now, but I think its importance is clear. We have to decide how far indignation trumps freedom. All right. Well, we will leave it there, and uh, I'm very interested to see what happens when the Supreme Court of Canada rules on this. Uh, Julius Gray, thank you so much for making some time it's for us pleasure. today. Well, just the mention of spiders, and when I said we were going to be talking about this after the news, prompted an email from one listener who said, Oh my, Jill, I'm not scared of spiders. I'm terrified of them. A lot of people out there, you are not alone. There are a lot of people out there that would freeze up when they see a spider, don't like seeing a photo of a spider, a picture, a movie that has spiders in them. So why do so many people have arachnophobia and is the spider misunderstood? Let's bring in Andreas Fischer, PhD candidate in the Department of Biological Studies at SFU. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Jerome. Are you afraid of spiders? I used to be. (laughs) Not anymore. All right. So what changed? Um, I learned. Um, the more I learned about spiders, the more I realized that they are much more fascinating than that there's reason to fear them. And that fascination took over. So why do you think so many people are afraid of them? I think it is mostly portrayal in media. Spiders are rarely portrayed as positive. And um, yeah, so there's an intrinsic fear in those people installed mostly by media education people get raised very early uh, by a caregiver to, well, to fear spiders or to at least dislike them. It's rarely that um, a parent will tell a little child, oh, look, what a cute spider. Um, So I think this is the main reason we in the Western world are so afraid of spiders. And is there a difference, do you think, when we talk about, so it's a much different scenario, say, in BC with the spiders that we have and what you might stumble upon in your hallway or maybe even in your boot in a hallway. But when you look at spiders, say, in Australia or New Zealand, some of the spiders there are furry and about the size of your hand or foot. Those ones, I don't consider myself somebody afraid of spiders, but seeing a spider like that would cause me to have a reaction. Yeah, I can um, relate and understand that. But I think there are two main misconceptions here. So the first thing is the size of the spider doesn't necessarily relate with its danger. Spiders don't cause physical damage like, let's say, dogs. So a bigger dog can make more danger. Spiders use venom. And the size of the spider doesn't necessarily reflect its danger for us. So here in British Columbia, Columbia, we have the Western Black Widow spider, which is considered among the top 10 most dangerous spiders in the world. It's roughly the same danger level as most dangerous spiders in Australia. So you have the same danger level here in BC as you would face in Australia. While the very large, most of the very large spiders, let's say in Australia, well, they're basically harmless. And um, 
yeah, so this is just something to to consider here. Hmm. I'm not sure you're you're really easing the fears people may have when they when they hear that about. <laughs> yeah, let's let's dive in there a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah. let's talk about the local black widow. The local black widow, which we have here in BC, mostly in the Okanagan, but also in the Metro Vancouver area, is a very timid spider. It doesn't like to bite people. And even to bite people, um, well, spider bites are just not that dangerous. There are many snakes or scorpions. If you get attacked by one, you have very little chance of survival. But there is not one spider in the whole world that will for sure kill an adult. And for the black widow, well, it's less than 3% that you get more than a bee sting reaction. So three out of 100 people get more than a bee sting reaction. And even that more than a bee sting is not really dangerous. So I don't recommend to seek out black widows and to ask to be bit, but um, they're not as dangerous as many people think. Would you know then if you've been, uh, been uh, ha- you've uh, received a bite from that spider? Well, um, there are many spiders that look like black widows, but are not black widows. For example, false widows, which are very common inside our buildings here in BC. And um, so it is very important to know what type of spider bit you. And when you look in the literature, a lot of people are coming to hospitals, to emergency rooms, saying they have a spider bite, a black widow bite. But at the end, it turned out that it was something else. The problem is they were treated for a long time for a black widow bite. And the actual cause remained untreated. And many people um, had very severe infections, bacterial infections that remained untreated for way too long. So um, when you go, if you think you got bit by a spider, it's very important that you take a clear photo or if possible, even the animal itself to the treating doctor that a confirmation can happen and that one is treated properly. All right. What about spiders? What is it do you, that makes them special or, or what do they do as far as communicating and uh, going about kind of their whole purpose? Uh, what, what is it that you find interesting? Well, I think most people will find it fascinating that spiders, each spider will eat roughly 30 times its own body mass per year. That means all the spiders in the whole world eat as many insects as all the humans eat fish and meat. That's a lot. That's roughly 400 million metric tons. So if all the spiders would be vanished, as many people would hope for, there would be so many more insects around. And that would be a real problem. So the spiders have a real uh, ecological importance. Um, But I find them just very fascinating the way they communicate. I study how they use the sense of smell, how they use pheromones to communicate with each other. And learning their language is something that really fascinates me. Because I think when we look at pictures of spiders or when we see spiders in our homes or outdoors, we don't often think about them communicating with each other. No, we don't. But it's actually very fascinating. There are spiders that dance to communicate with each other. Or other spiders use vibration. They tap on the floor and hope that the other one feels it. And again, many spiders, this is what I'm looking at, um, they use a sense of smell. They release uh, volatiles, pheromones, pheromones. Yeah, basically like a perfume, if you wish, to attract their mating partner and to communicate how attractive they are or not. And that's how males find females in most cases. So is it is it the package that we're scared by? Because so many of them, the the little body, those long legs, uh, they, you, you fear that they're going to bite you. Uh, I mean, some people may be drawn to that, but I think the fear comes for a lot of people is in that they just don't look all that, I don't know, agreeable. Hmm. 
Well, I think that also depends on the angle you're looking at them. There are many spiders that actually look very charismatic and you would say cute if you would give a chance to look at them, mm-hmm. but most people just snap them off their table uh, before they have a closer look. Um, well, spiders can be really fascinating if one allows oneself to, to dive in and, and meet them where they are at. And I think most people are deep down afraid of what they don't know. And because spiders are so unfamiliar with their many eight legs and the way they move, um, that we don't allow ourselves to embrace the unknown. So if you had a spider in your home, so if, if I find a spider in my home right now, yeah. I, I will take a paper towel or a piece of paper and I will kind of get it to go on that and I will take it outside and, and say, thanks for visiting. You're not needed here. But knowing that, like you said, they eat a lot of bugs and they do a lot of good. I never want to kill a spider, but I'm not. And again, I'll say I don't think I, I'm, I have a phobia, but I don't want it on my skin. So are you saying in a scenario like that, could I put it on my hand and take it outside and it wouldn't bite me? Yes, so the spider will not bite you, most likely. Uh, well, most spiders we have in BC, they are unable to bite you even if they wanted to. And um, there's no spider that can harm you more than a bee sting but the black widow spider. So if you have a larger spider in your home you want to bring outside, um, if you're comfortable enough, you can put it on your skin, but I would recommend use the paper towel trick, as you mentioned before. Um, but, yeah, these spiders are not dangerous even to leave inside the house because sometimes we do get insects in the house we actually don't want, um, and their spiders could be helpful. But at the end of the day, um, we have to learn to live with spiders because spiders are everywhere where people are, and um, we are just making our own life uncomfortable if we are not trying to embrace them. And maybe this is also from watching too many movies or around this time of year, Halloween, yeah. when spiders uh, become costumes and part of the displays and such. If I go to sleep at knowing that there's a spider in the room somewhere, in my mind, I just imagine it crawling onto my skin while I'm sleeping and biting me. But is it not interested in doing that? Oh, it's, that's the least <laughs> the spider has on their mind. They have no intention of interacting with us. There's nothing about us that would interest them. And they're, so there's a, this common misconception that people would eat spiders in their sleep accidentally. Well, spiders just don't like wet crevices like our mouth. So there is no reason for them to enter our mouth. So spiders usually would stay away from you. And you can learn to cohabit with them. Or if you want, you can kick them out. But at the end of the day, uh, the spiders are around and will be around, especially this time of year. They will press inside the buildings as the temperatures drop and because it's warm and cozy inside. And that's what they will be looking for the next coming of weeks. All right. And just one question then on the, the Western widow spider. Are there specific areas, I think you mentioned this, where they like to be? I mean, are, are there wood piles? Are there certain places where maybe people could avoid uh, that it's more likely they would encounter that spider? So generally, one would say that they'd like um, wet, hot areas. So in the Okanagan, you would find them in the irrigation boxes that are sun exposed. Here in the lower mainland, um, mostly in coastal areas on some very rare beaches underneath driftwood. That's where you could find them on Vancouver Island, likewise uh, on some beaches uh, under driftwood. They like these hot sun exposed areas with humidity, meaning which is provided by the driftwood near the uh, ocean, near the body of water. Are you hopeful that that by talking about this, you can get more people to kind of be like you who were maybe afraid of spiders at one point, but after learning about them and and seeing what they're really all about, not being afraid of them? Well, yeah, that would be definitely a 
um, a hope of mine that people are engaging with what um, they are uncomfortable with and facing those fears because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are suffering. And if they embrace those fears and uh, conquer them, um, their lives will become much, much more easy and comfortable, even around spiders. And I think I already know the answer to this question, but my guess is you would encourage people that even if you're very freaked out, you are arachnophobic, don't kill the spider. Yeah, I would recommend people to try to find out something about them, something you didn't know about that particular spider. And um, yeah, just to learn. All right. Well, Andreas Fischer, I have learned a lot in these past few moments. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.